We are able to win the most important customers in each vertical we go after. I felt like cheating a little bit. So what we did was that we changed the go-to-market motion from this more generalistic to a verticalized one. By breaking down these barriers and having them work cross-functionally under one roof, so to speak, has meant that they've been able to run incredibly fast. And the, the evidence of that, I think, is a world-class win rate. So the output here is, is a win rate somewhere between 75 to 50%. And people were like, this is insane. Because if my win rate is 50, 75%, my problem isn't winning the deal. My problem is how many customers are making decisions. I need decisions. Whether they're yes or no, I need decisions. Today, we welcomed Max von Bar Emelson on the podcast. CCO at TrueLayer. For you who don't know TrueLayer, it is Europe's leading open banking payment network. Um, for example, if you're a Revolut user, you have most probably experienced their technology. And in September 2021, they raised a whooping $130 million. And with that, they reached a unicorn status, a valuation above $1 billion. About four years ago, TrueLayer had just gone from zero to one and they were ready to scale to 10. And that's when Max Emelson entered to take over the revenue department. Now, four years later, they are scaling like crazy, plus 80 FTEs in the revenue department and their experience closing ratios of about 70%. And in this episode, we are unpacking Max's experiences at TrueLayer. You're going to hear how they transformed their organizational structure from a generalistic siloed one to a cross-functional and verticalized one and what that meant for their go-to-market motions. You're going to hear about the consequences, benefits, and challenges of implementing such a structure. You also hear from Max what it's like to sell innovative tech to enterprise customers with a relatively complex implementation. And it's actually not a coincidence that he talks about that because it has a lot to do with the why verticalizing the revenue department. So please enjoy my conversation with Max. So first of all, Max, uh, thanks for doing this. Thanks for taking the time for, for being on the show. Um, before we talk more about your experience at TrueLayer, uh, can you maybe shortly introduce yourself uh, and while you're at it, can you also maybe explain what TrueLayer does exactly? Certainly. So my name is Max. I'm the Chief Commercial Officer of TrueLayer. Uh, so I'm in charge of getting new customers and keeping them happy. And in the meanwhile, increasing TrueLayer's revenues by doing that. So it's an organization of roughly 80 people, I think, today. Uh, I have been here roughly four years. Previously, I was eight years at Klarna. Klarna is another payment method online, but more on the credit side. TrueLayer works more on the debit side. So TrueLayer is an online payment method using a technology called open banking. It essentially works, you are Dutch, I believe, like Ideal in Netherlands. So it's a way of paying for goods and services online only using your bank account rather than a card or a credit card or whatever it might be. And it works across Europe and UK. Merchants like it because it's very cost effective and there's no fraud essentially. And the consumers like it because there's no manual typing in credit card information or anything like that. You just authenticate the payment in the app uh, of okay. the bank app of your online bank. So it feels very safe and secure for the consumer. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Okay, no, good. Thanks, very interesting. Uh, can you maybe also kind of 
sketch up a little bit the sales environment, the sales context at that true layer in terms of so, maybe, I don't know, deal size, sales cycle, uh, go to market motions, team structure, anything you deem relevant for the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. So payments, uh, the way you make money in payments is that you charge every time a consumer uses your payment method online. So the, um, the revenues from like fixed fees, monthly fees, like the, the, the classic sales model is very limited. We need to activate the consumer in the checkout. So that means that we are dependent on volume. Payments is very much a volumes game for many different reasons. So that means that we become incredibly enterprise heavy. The bigger, the better. We make more money, the bigger the merchants, the more the, the, the product is used by consumers. The other thing is uh, being a payment method is means that you move money and moving money is always very sensitive uh, relative to, let's say that you are a, uh, I don't know, a marketing sauce tool, which is like, yeah, you can increase the lead of the, for the customers or whatever value it is you deliver to them. We're actually moving money from different bank accounts. So there is this overhead and complexity which which means that the implementation <clears throat> of our service is a rather complicated one so it means that we want to go after big customers because we need volume and this sale cycle and implementation is relatively complicated so the payback of our uh, go-to-market motion is incredibly long so it requires a lot of uh, uh, patience, which I sadly lack, uh, and it requires a lot of faith in the plan. Like it's very hard to gain the feedback you need from the market faster than two years. Like it, you, you to to do end to end, going with a new product into a vertical with a set of customers, it takes you essentially two years to really know if this thing worked or not. Uh, and that requires, in, in turn, very um, uh, uh, patient salespeople and marketing people and implement everyone across the chain must be very uh, patient. But the payoff is rather big if you manage to succeed, and it require it 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 creates a moat of sorts because once you have the customer, it's a big deal for that customer to change. Uh, supplier simply put. Right, right. That's interesting. I'm also sure we're going to touch on it uh, later on in, in, in the case that we kind of uh, will unpack here uh, because in the preparation we talked about the how you kind of moved the organization away from a generalistic siloed sales organization to a more uh, cross-functional verticalized one. And so I would like to unpack that story for sure. But yep. maybe before we move uh, and really do that immediately. Can you kind of uh, tell for you know for the audience, like for whom is it particularly interesting, and for whom is it maybe okay if they want to skip this episode, even though I wouldn't recommend to do that. But you know, for who is it really relevant? Yeah, no, sure. So I think uh, today uh, a lot of companies work with product length growth. That is something completely different. Um, where uh, it's much more inbound focused on uh, uh, based on how the product performs, etc. I think that 
is something we're not utilizing today. We should get better at it, but this is not the game plan currently. And the other one is focusing on very small merchants, general merchants, you know, where you have millions of, of potential customers. I think that as well today is not the motion. I think that will change in the future, but currently that's not what sort of our plan is for. Uh, because we have to go after these rather massive uh, uh, merchants, relatively speaking. Okay. So, so feel free to just start wherever you want to start. Sure. But uh, I would like to discuss the yeah the transformation that you made happen at, at TrueLayer. Can you maybe kind of sketch the situation before? Like, yeah. how was it at the beginning when you when yeah. you entered TrueLayer about four years ago? Yeah. And, you know, how did it come to mind to also make this transformation happen? Did you yeah. see something that was not okay and that yeah. caused the rest? Like, curious yeah. about that. I would say that this is a team effort. Like, I'm the one uh, verbalizing uh, what happened, but it's very much an organization who made the change together with me. Um, uh, but regardless, so when I came in four years ago, it was very much... Um, a new technology, uh, being out there trying to find, you know, the, the 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 young companies who would willing to make a bet on a very unproven technology, and that required a very fast-footed, uh, tech-savvy uh, sales organization to try to, you know, create the impossible, which is like making companies make a pretty big bet on a completely unproven technology. And that is very hard. This zero to one is incredibly difficult. But when I came in, the team has got had gotten to the one and now it was more the one to 10. So uh, payments, again, it's a little bit of a niche industry, but I think there are learnings to be made regardless. It's very industry specific because the challenges that you're trying to solve is quite different. If you imagine uh, Booking.com, a travel company, versus Amazon.com, a marketplace, the problems that these two organizations face in terms of payments are actually quite different. It can be problems with fraud. It can be problems with how quickly you gain access to the money. Uh, in, in travel, that, that could be because of uh, issues with uh, uh, companies going belly up, that it takes time for the money to get there, etc. I won't delve into the actual problems, but let's just say that each vertical and each industry had very, had very specific problems. That means that when you build a platform like ours, so a payment method that should be able to be utilized in any situation, you have that product behind you, but when you then go to market, what we've learned is that we need to utilize a different language, different pricing model, a different network, different conferences on each of these different sub-verticals. So what we did was that we changed the go-to-market motion from this more generalistic to a verticalized one. And that meant hiring uh, expertise in those verticals and that could either be from the buy side or the sell side but you want someone who sort of understands the problem from the customer side which is then very industry specific and to build up that network i mean also when we we create this you know roi 
reports for our customers. Like if you implement us, you're going to make this much more money or save this money, da, da, da. To be able to do these, which are quite complicated when it comes to moving money, you have to be very deep into like, what's the CAC for these customers? What's the churn of their customer base? Like what different challenges do they have to be able to really speak to them? Because if you go with a generalistic message, it won't break through the noise for them. So I think that was the first big change. The second big change was that, you know, normally in a commercial organization, you have the marketing team, they build the pipeline, the SDRs, they create the opportunity, sales closes, then you have an implementation team, then you have a customer success team, and then you have a support team. So we did something quite different, uh, which is that we instead embedded these functions in the verticals. So that means that the vertical leader has a dotted line into marketing, SDR, implementation, and customer success, sales with the direct line. But the vertical leader is really the person saying, what's the priority? What are the KPIs, etc." So we can avoid stuff like marketing saying that SDR is way too slow in picking up the leads. And SDR is saying, oh, marketing is just sending me crap. Like these type of discussions are very seldom happening in our organization because everyone sits together with a joint KPI working together. And it also gives freedom to the vertical leader to be able to move, let's say the implementation team, which is post sales, right? After you close the deal, now you got to turn it on. We can now utilize them in the sales motion if that's where it's needed. And that brings a lot of credibility to the conversation because they can explain to the implementation team prior to signing the deal, you know, we will help you, we will hold your hand and gain a lot of credibility there. So I think that sort of flexibility within an organization in the vertical creates this small team of like seven, eight, nine people who really run in the same um, uh, uh, direction instead of sub-optimizing for their own KPIs. Now, the big downside of this model is that it is fairly inefficient. Like it costs a lot of money because you need to recreate the same type of organization on each vertical for each it to work. So, you know, the marketing person embedded in the iGaming team becomes like an iGaming generalist rather than you know if you have an event specialist or an seo etc so it's this sort of battle in a way between the centralized organization where most of the resources sit and the agile vertical team but what we have found is that by breaking down these barriers and having them work cross-functionally under one roof so to speak has meant that they've been able to run incredibly fast and the, the evidence of that, I think, is a world-class win rate. So the output here is, is a win rate somewhere between 75 to 50%, which in, wow. my, in my experience, like if I got to 30, I was happy. Now, is it only because of, of this? No, absolutely not. Like we have a fantastic product, we have a fantastic brand. Like we have, you know, 100 different things going for us. But I can definitely see uh, uh, that sort of 
our ability to win the big deals in the verticals we're going after, I am convinced, have to do with the vertical expertise and not only on the sales side, but across the board. And we're even bringing product on board and definitely a part of this as well, even though they're not part of the matrix organization per se. But it brings you so much credibility when we talk to these very large organizations with deep expertise. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you that. Yeah, wh where does it stop? Where do you put a line um, outside and inside the matrices, matrices? Because does it mean that product implementation, they can be, they cannot be part of a matrix depending on the situation, depending on the vertical? But for example, like the pricing strategy, certain go-to-market motions, remuneration systems inside the verticals, is that always dependent on the vertical or are there some domains that yes are no. an entire department it, it, it's a great question and i think this is a battle we have every day around what about this question what about that question right and and i don't have like a blanket also to that i think it has to do with the you know how we scale and how mature our processes become and i can see more and more with our processes becoming more and more mature a lot of them the more process-centric things like, you know, how do you handle leads? How do you do pipeline management? What are the weekly cadences? All of that good stuff becomes more and more centrally uh, uh, um, done. Uh, whilst in the matrix, it, it, it's much more about creating a team, you know, having a KPI, winning together, losing together, you know, having the marketing person cheer when the implementation person takes someone live, you know, having that sense of, of one unit working together, it's highly motivational, I find, for the team uh, and, and all of that good stuff relative to decentralizing like commission models. Absolutely not. I have been pushing for <laughs> including product and engineering in this type of model so far for deaf ears uh, because we have a platform uh, type of model. Uh, from the product product side, um, so I think that one is unlikely. So so we put it, we, we keep it inside of the organization that I own, so to speak. But product is heavily involved in setting the go to market, uh, being very close to the customer, all of that jazz. But there is no one like, you know, head of travel. We don't have such a person in in product yet. Hi guys, I quickly want to let you know that we are doubling down on this podcast and by so doing, we are looking for the better revenue stories out there. So if you like what you hear, please give it a like or a follow. It is a simple click on a button, but that click would mean the world to us. All right, let's go back. <laughs> got it, got it. I absolutely love the the team spirit that you create with such a, an organizational structure um, and especially also the joint KPIs. Like again, again, imagine for sure that that brings like the team in one and the same direction but how do you then still make sure that on an individual performance level people are still doing it at the highest exactly. level they can exactly now it's a great question because it puts an immense pressure on the shoulders of the vertical leader they become like a mini ceo of their own world because they own everything from building pipeline to the ultimate KPI revenues and, and the revenues is, is if the if the vertical is mature, that is the leading KPI. But if it's a very immature uh, vertical, it could be how many opportunities do we create this quarter? So you you sort of like 
the KPI follows the maturitization of the vertical until it ends up with uh, 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 with revenue finally. We come up with new products and new verticals and new countries. It's such a young company still that, you know, for me, it's like running around spinning 20 different, like, oh, are we creating opportunities here? Are we generating revenues there? Because, and, and for someone like me, I don't think I have ADHD, but a little bit. For me, it's an incredibly dynamic environment to be a part of because like every day I get to work with something which is just like an idea uh, all the way to like, oh my God, this big merchant might be churning. You know, I get I get all of this every day and, and that is just, you know, it's, this is my dream job, sensations. quite frankly. <laughs> I love to hear that. Um, so maybe to, to talk about like the verticalization exercise that you had to make uh, at the beginning of it, like what are the parameters you looked at? Was it easy to define like the verticals, the industries you really wanted to go after and to, oh, to yeah, differentiate them from the others? Uh, no, it, it's a great question. I would say that thanks to eight years at Klarna, so I had this payment experience. It felt a little bit like I had read, you know, two chapters in the school book before the rest of the class. So I sort of, I had, I felt like cheating a little bit. So I could say like, okay, guys, here are like three no-brainers. We need to do A, B, and C in terms of the verticals. I just knew based on my experience that this would work out. Then it, 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 we discuss and debate this every day around which verticals. And, you know, you try to combine it by being very data-driven and this whole TAM versus SAM and all of that good stuff. And, you know, most verticals are big enough, you know, like we, you don't need to like debate is travel big enough, is accommodation big enough, is uh, fast fashion big enough. Like, yeah, if you win these verticals, it's going to be big enough. Like, trust me. So it's very much a debate around the right to win. And the way I think about it is, you know, that curve of like first movers, early adapters, early majority, late majority get fatter. In each vertical, there are, there are merchants who follow that, but then each vertical fit that one as well. So there are verticals which are very slow moving and, and verticals where are very fast moving. So for me, what I'm always trying to gauge based on, we record every customer uh, meeting. So I, I have the luxury of sitting maybe three, four hours a day. Uh, my wife complains even after bedtime uh, uh, listening to customer calls and just trying to figure out like where are you getting enough signals from the verticals we're probing on like okay like data driven not data driven there is something here here is a problem that the customer is popping up big enough and then we maybe put an AE half time or like okay man probe here, like talk to 10 customers in this vertical, throw in an SDR, let's see what we get. And we sort of unpack it slowly, but surely to figure it out. So I would say it's, it's a combination of strategy in terms of Sam, Tam, all of that good stuff, right to win. Uh, and just the knowledge of like how, how, how open is this vertical in trying new technologies because we are a new technology we're not selling card processing which has been around since the 50s or whatever 
this is brand spanking new. So if there is a vertical which is very like slow moving, you know, let's not prioritize that one. Let's always think about who is able to make a decision. Because if my win rate is 50, 75%, my problem isn't winning the deal. My problem is how many customers are making decisions. I need decisions, whether they're yes or mm-hmm. no, I need decisions. So it, it, you know, it's a combination of being very data-driven, but not too much. Follow your instincts and your gut. And what are the anecdotal customer discussions telling you? And you put all of that together. And then what we do each quarter is that we sit down in each main vertical and we go through how the quarter went and we debate together with product around where should we now double down in which vertical. So it's a very dynamic uh, work when it's such a young company as us. Because, you know, as a payment method, what you have to realize is that we're trying to create something that should work everywhere. Like the end goal here is that everyone should be able to use open banking true layer across the board, in-store, digitally, vertical, whatever it might be. But you have to incrementally win the consumer. So like the, the whole technology play, like one day I want to de-verticalize and become this general sales again, because then like, oh, open banking. Yeah, of course we're going to use open banking. It's a no brainer. But today it's, it's, it's like, I don't know, I don't know, cutting edge, but like it's still fairly fresh technology. So that fear still is there. So we need to figure out who is brave enough to actually dare to take the plunge uh, and then sort of go from there. That's interesting. I also like how you br- you brought in like best experience at Klarna uh, in terms of knowing the industry and knowing what vertical you should enter. Um, how about like the team? Do you also like recruit particular people that have industry specific knowledge or how do you look at that? Yeah, so uh, we have three main verticals today. All three of those have sold a similar product to the same industry before. So this is, you know, there's not a lot of humans on the planet who has been selling the same technology to the same type of customer in a leadership position in Europe. Like it's very narrow, very narrow. And then culture fit and, you know, salary rate, like everything must. So these recruitments took, I think all of them individually took two years each to figure out. So these are, oh, wow. you know, incredibly critical employees from, uh, from that sense. So on the leadership side, incredibly picky, incredibly picky, uh, because I know if I hire like a good salesperson as a leader, which is, you know, not unthinkable, I just know that uh, it's going to take them like one, one and a half year to get their hands around the problem properly because it is fairly complicated. And with the, you know, demands in today's environment and, you know, the revenue screws have turned up the last 18 months, I don't have that time. So um, it very picky there. Whilst on the IC side of things, it's much more about like mindset intelligence, all of that good stuff. If you have the right background, it's a plus. It really is. Some more important than others. But like most, a lot of the salespeople we have today, I believe is the first time they've worked in payments, I would say the majority. So that's less of a problem. But I I put in an enormous amount of energy and time in making sure we get the right leaders with the right expertise. 
That's interesting. Leadership team, yes for experience, ICs, more focused on skill set and mindset. And I get it though, because the leadership team can probably transfer everything they have had in their past experience to then the rest of the team. Exactly. And I know that the strategy is going to like, they're going to have a bunch of ideas. They're going to go out and probe it. If you bring in a new person, it's very much around like, yeah, I'm going to go out and listen to the market. And of course you should listen to, everyone needs to listen to the market, but bring three hypotheses on where you think we should go. And then maybe one of them works out. And that just, you know, outside of the net network to be able to sell, I don't really care about that. That's a nice to have. It's really the strategic, like we, we brought in someone who had just recently uh, head of e-commerce at uh, 12 years at PayPal as head of enterprise sales, something like this. Very, very sharp, incredible uh, experience. And like in one week, in one week, it feels like he's been here for six months. He's just like, the conversion rate here is too low. The coverage here is too low. We need to think about this. This doesn't work. And you just sit there like, oh my God, we've been trying to break into this vertical now for four years. And when he says it's so clear, like, yeah, no, these are the four things we got to focus on. Let's get to work, you know, that, that power and that credibility and the feedback from the team, the vertical who got a new leader, that's always shaky. Like we brought in many leaders and the whole team churns because, you know, it's a new leader. It's perfectly natural. There's no problem with that. Here is the opposite. Like here, everyone got like a shot in the arm because they just felt like here is a senior leader. They know how to whip a pipeline. That's that's a requirement. But they also have a really good idea about the customer's perspective from 12 years of PayPal doing essentially the same thing. And, you know, it took us two years to find him. We had to wait six months to get him over here, but I mean, no problem compared to the value he has delivered in just like two months. Yeah. When it's a fit, you kind of feel it immediately. Can you maybe talk about like the buying of the leadership team? Because I can imagine like, I don't know also if the idea of verticalizing also came maybe from them or was it from other people inside the organization or kind of a back and forth or... Oh, is no, that? it's a fair question. I think that most of the leadership team I have recruited. So by definition, it comes afterwards. And I think I think everyone is bought in. We are debating it. I think everyone is bought in conceptually on it. Then I think what you mentioned before on the balance, like where does the accountability sit? Because if I'm head of customer success, am I accountable for the revenue or is it the vertical leader? And the answer is yes. You know, you both are. That's the problem. Exactly. You know, this is the the lack of one throat to choke is a problem. So what I put an, a lot of effort in, I don't know if you read Five Dysfunctions of a Team, um, but this is this is the book. This It takes you three days to read the, in the evening. It's, it's the lightest book you read, but it, it is my Bible. Um, you know, and, and it's really about the question of assumption of positive intent. And I talk a lot about the assumption of positive intent. And that is, you know, with your friends and with your family, there is an assumption of positive intent. So when your mom says like, hey, uh, 
you know, why do you dress? You need to dress nice or whatever, you know, like they, she says something that if it's someone else saying it, you would say, go to hell, but it's your mom. So you know that all she's doing, she's trying to look, look out for you, right? Yeah, she has good intents. She has good intent. So when someone writes on Slack and says, hey, why is this customer contracting? You know, if there is no assumption of positive intent, the other person will go, hey, I'm being questioned on my job here. Who's this person who just came in two months ago? Now I'm going to get defensive and aggressive. So creating this culture of assumption of positive intent, it solves like nine problems out of 10. And as soon as I sense conflict, as soon as I sense finger pointing, like it is always the lack of assumption of positive intent. And the way to solve this, one of them is the matrix organization, where you sort of remove it forcefully. The other is, and, and you know, there is, there is, it's very simple. It is physical time together. You have to talk to each other. This is the absolute most critical one. If it's only digital interactions, if you're going to deliver uh, constructive feedback, do it in person. But the most important thing is being vulnerable. Being open and vulnerable with each other. And that starts at the top and roll down. So if I, as a leader, am not vulnerable with my uh, staff and my organization, they will never be vulnerable. If I'm cocky, they're going to be cocky. Like I believe that the culture always rolls down. So I try to make a point around humbleness, vulnerability in face-to-face uh, -face interactions. And I find when I lead by example and I'm vulnerable with my team, it spreads and that creates this level of uh, assumption of positive intent. And that is the most critical part of my culture. The other part around performance, which is holding each other accountable, that's, you know, fine. And that's table stakes, but the assumption of positive intent, I cannot stand finger pointing. I cannot stand politics and I have a pretty good radar for it. Uh, and that's what I spend maybe, I don't know, half of my week making sure that the connections here across the departments with the verticals, which is the most critical one, but bringing in product, whatever it might be. And it's so simple that when we in the management team are disaligned, it takes 10 minutes, then those relative organizations will be disaligned because it, it rolls immediately down. So it, it starts definitely on the management side, but then I need to maintain it, of course, within my organization as well. Hi guys, just wanted to invite you to block May 16, 2024 in your agenda for the We Are Sales conference. The number one reason why people didn't join last year is simply because they hadn't blocked the date. So I hope that by so doing, you can block it. Hope to see you there on May 16, 2024. All right, let's go back. It's funny you, you brought in the, the book Five Dysfunctions of a Team because it, it sounds a lot similar to what the previous guest on the show uh, gave us as a book. It was a book, Radical Candor. I don't know if you have heard of it. Right. Where it's about giving feedback right. and how you have to be direct, but still, you know, do it but the right you way. And not be direct and, without the assumption of positive intent. Because well, then exactly. That that so it starts there, but then absolutely on the on the candor and the you can be 
infinitely direct with your best buddy, you know, because you have been friends for 30 years. So it's like you can say literally anything to, to this person. But you have to create that trust with each other first or otherwise it would just fall on deaf ears. So, yeah, no, that, it's, it seems reasonable, yeah. <laughs> Good. So you, you maybe touched on it at the beginning of it already, but like when you roll out like that transformation in the organization, when is it realistic to see results coming out of it? When do you start to feel having a grab of those verticals, you know, feeling like we understand the customers, we can set up processes now to work with them, see the results coming out of it. When do you think, maybe in your case specifically, might yeah. be different for everyone. Yeah. No, it is is a fair point. I would say there are a bunch of milestones that you achieve. I think if you have a motivated salesperson, a little bit of marketing, a little bit of SDR, I think six months is a reasonable come back to HQ and say, this is what I've learned. I spoke to 50 customers. Here is the feedback. Here is the anecdotes. Here are the actual leads. Here is the revenue opportunity. I think it takes something like that. I don't think you close in our world. You don't close deals that quickly because just building the pipeline takes maybe six months and then maybe another six months to actually close the deals. That's why I'm saying two years full cycle to actually know mm -hmm. that your hypothesis is correct but something like that and then if if we feel confident after six months there is something here i think give us another six months to close one two three big deals and if you do that then you're starting to feel real confidence that we are solving a real problem the customer is interested in solving it and perhaps equally important that we can size the revenue opportunity because we get a good sense of what's the customer willing to pay, how much volume is going through here, what's a reasonable assessment. And if you feel good then that the TAM, SAM, all of that good stuff is big enough and the urgency is there, then you double down. So let's say that you can create real confidence in a year, six months, you can probably abort it if it's not working based on the feedback from the market. I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Yeah, good answer. Um, because you also gave like a kind of a step yeah. process to it. Like first talk to the 50 customers that would be ideal in that vertical. Then for the coming six months, if you see that there might be something to play around with, having those first customer close. I mean, the timing is then, you know, depending on, on the context. But Exactly, you know, exactly. Like, and I think, I yeah. think it's moving from if to when is w what my inner inner sense is. And we have a lot of when, which isn't if. The problem with when, in especially today's environment, you have to grow the revenues. So when is actually fairly important. If is clearly uh -huh. binary and more critical, but the when is now increasing in importance. So great, we have a good win rate, all of that jazz. But how do you shorten the sales cycle, the implementation and the ramp up? You know, we, we work a lot around the concept of FOMO. So anyone who, who works in my organization know I talk about FOMO every day and it is the best. Like it's unbelievable. How, how do you there mean nothing... FOMO? You mean a fear of missing out, right? Yes. So like uh, if you're saying, if I'm telling you that I'm, I'm your biggest competitor uh, is about to sign, is about to go live or is a super happy customer, like there is nothing else. In enterprise sales, there is nothing else because everyone is looking at their competitor 
like a hawk. Like all of these, you know, PRs we do, like we're setting a oh, true layer launch with X, true layer signs with Y, etc. Like the ones who really care, they are competitors. Like they're the ones who obsess and who like send on Slack. Hey, look, true layer signed this one again, you know. I don't really give a shit what they think about me, but I, I'm trying to do it to create a urgency in the market around that this product is taking off. And you can just sense like the level of sharpness and reactiveness in specific verticals. Since we target so narrow verticals often, so very specific, that of course, you know, you know your, your five, 10 biggest competitors or you're not doing your job. And if I'm telling you they're now going live with this new technology that's going to increase their revenue by X or lower their cost by Y, you know, it, it, there is nothing that moves that uh, quicker. So it, it, it's so it's so easy to see how hard this is in the beginning. The zero to one in a new vertical is ten times harder than the one to ten because on the one to ten I have the FOMO. I can just keep pointing at my customers and saying, "Look, you know." I can't tell you how many leads have uh, originated from the CEO of the biggest competitor trying their competitor saying, what the hell is this? Sending that to their team, their team coming to us and saying, yeah, our CEO told us they want the same thing as the, the competitor is doing. How do we do that? You know, of course, I'm trying to push it as well simultaneously, but it's unbelievable. High quality companies, they always have a, a fierce a check on their competitors and how well that works from an enterprise sales perspective relative to buying, you know, the, the, the football logo. Like I, I couldn't think of a bigger waste of money for us to do something like that relative to just taking a screenshot of the checkout with us included and sending that to, to the competition. It works every time. Yeah, I can imagine that. And I can also imagine that, yeah, enterprise customers, they want the best at every level. And so they can kind of play with indeed, like all the players in the market and tease you away like that. They get it. And you know, like uh, payments, again, it's, it's a niche, but like every big company who sells online, they have a team, an organization and a leader whose only job is payments. And again, right. So you have both the vertical problem to solve and then you have the payments so you have two two lengths you need to be an expert you need to understand the vertical and you need to understand payments and how they interact together this is this is why the you know having salespeople working here for a long time gaining this understanding in the network is so important the problem is if you bring a salesperson from like salesforce they are like, where are the processes? Where are the presentations? Where are the leads? I want to earn commission in, in two quarters, etc. That's not how this works. This is very much you need to create that together with the vertical because it's such such a niche. And then the, the, the cycles are so long. But then once you get the customer, it's it's good. You can you can earn a lot of money. But but you have to have that sort of business development mindset. It's not selling a box you know it's it's very much developing with your customers and that requires a very very specific sales person relative to selling like a sauce uh, software or whatever got it 
in, in your opinion, like what is the, the the biggest advantage of having a model like that? Is it cooperation? Is it understanding the customer? Is it rapidity? Is it anything else I've not mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the output is it's quicker to get to the revenues. Like that's the ultimate output. And the reason behind that is the win rate that you're able to, we are able to win the most important customers in each vertical we go after. And the reason why we're able to do that is that we hire very intelligent, very hardworking people who we give the chance to nerd down into a specific, they become totally obsessed about it and they work together uh, all the way across. It's not like, oh, deal sold, throw it over to implementation, good luck, I'm off to the next one. Having that end-to-end view cross-collaboratively is incredibly important. Making sure that sales isn't selling crap that we don't have. Like they are accountable all the way and they only make money when the product is actually used. So it's sort of like a self-reinforcing system. I could have paid commission when they closed the deal on like a projection, but I know that would lead me in very dark places. So I, I think like the the output revenues uh, is much higher. And the reason is that we win more deals and you have the accountability across the chain, which just means that the, the output, the revenues will be much greater because it's not this sort of siloed, oh, it's their problem. Like that, of course, it exists a little, but it exists, exists a lot less. Uh, right. So I think that's the main, main benefit. How do you see this evolves? Do you see yourself adding new uh, verticals to the business? Or because you mentioned earlier something about, you know, willing to be a generalistic provider again. Um, does that mean that the organization should also evolve towards a yeah. more generalistic structure or yeah. do you just add on new verticals yeah. to, no, to the no, business? It's a good question. I think the short to medium term, it is more verticals, more countries, all of that good stuff. So you can theoretically replicate the vertical in France and in Spain, etc. Important here that it doesn't become unbelievably convoluted. So you have to balance that. But but definitely more country vertical. Then, you know, a little bit like Klarna, you know, Klarna received, became like mainstream at some point a couple of years ago where you, you're like, oh, I'm calling from Klarna. Oh, Klarna. You know, but when I worked there, it was like, yeah, you get the goods first and you touch and feel them and then you pay. And people were like, this is insane. They're past that. We are at that stage still. But once we, everyone, you know, 80% of the population has used our product or whatever that, you know, de- line of demarcation is, then the verticalization becomes less necessary. Like when our product becomes table stakes, I think stuff like activity levels and processes becomes much more important because then it's like, you know, here it is, here is how it works, you know, and that scales much better, much better. It's much easier to hire, like we spoke of before. You can bring in someone, you have an onboarding problem, uh, program, you know, we use Mendic, uh, we use Challenger Sale, like it's bam, 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 read these books, follow, pick up the phone 50 times a day, whatever. I think you have to get to that point at some point. I think you will always have a, like a, a Ninja enterprise 
very big enterprise expertise, that's fine. Uh, but we will become less dependent on that verticalization when the technology becomes more mainstream. But that's, I don't know, 10 years, five years, very oh, hard. Oh, really? Interesting. So if you had to do this all over again, I'm sure there were a couple of things you would have done differently. What what some of the elements, you know, yeah, would you have I, done I, differently? I think that I, I, when I came in, you know, we were trying to find our feet uh, in terms of like, what are the output KPIs that we should be optimizing for? Because early on in a company's history, it might not be revenues. It could be number of customers. It could be usage of the product, like all of that good stuff. I pivoted my focus to revenues way too early. I should have been more long-term focused from day one. Um, uh, uh, it just led to a bunch of sub-optimization. Why was that? Loans. Huh? Because I, I can imagine that other sales leaders, you know, also maybe prioritized revenue before other things. So, uh, why, why was that? Was it... Why I chose to prioritize it early? Yeah. I mean, I was the chief revenue officer at that time, you know, like you have the, the name and the, <laughs> you have the output. It's the expectation the that's title. being. You know, like that, that's it, you know, like I was, I was trying to really figure out, you know, how quickly can we scale this thing? And you end up nickel and dime scaling it, you know, you're sort of scaling it a couple of percent, but when, when the nominal is very low, a couple of percent, it doesn't matter, you know? Of course, it's mm -hmm. important to show that you grow the revenues, but like, I think we would have benefited from taking a little bit of a longer view, saying like, how do we get to, uh, you know, whatever milestone it might be and raising that bar and having adequate amount of time of achieving it. Because if you keep setting aggressive targets without really understanding how you're going to reach them too early, sort of lose credibility, you sort of burn a lot of energy and hiring on stuff where the ROI is just like, yeah, even if you achieve it, it's like, it's not moving the needle. But once we sort of realized and cracked it, we started closing very big deals instead. And you know, that, you know, maybe six, 12 months sales cycle, six, 12 month implementation cycle. That's the two years I'm talking about, right? But I'm not asking for the revenues of this customer because we cannot make money until we close the deal and, and sort of turn them on. So, it, you know, having that, it, it, I think it's a question of maturity and being so secure in your own ability to execute that you can be, you know, like everyone calm down. We need two years to fix X, Y, and Z. And I think today I have a little bit more of that maturity, but I think when I came in here, I probably put a lot of pressure on myself to try to get the ROI moving a little bit too soon. Um, and that's a learning on my side. And, you know, it, it, it ended very well. So we, you know, it's, we're doing incredibly well right now. We're, we're up a lot, uh, because of a lot of the work we did two, three years ago, but we could have had an even bigger. Uh, if we would have just 
thought a little bit more long term than what I did maybe the first six nine months. Do you sometimes also do this same exercise now for like the coming 10 years? Like how should I think today for in 10 years from now, you know, don't retrospectively look at that like, oh, I should have thought maybe. Oh, no. I mean, like the most practical thing I can tell you is when we launch new products. And I'm still fighting this today because it might be that, you know, oh, we built so much pipeline, so much potential revenue pipeline here. And I'm like, forget it. Just ignore it. This new product is unproven. Don't count it. Just, I want to see a hundred leads. I don't want to see a hundred million ARR leads because you don't know what the customer is worth to us. That's just like a very practical hands-on mistake that I did four years ago, trying to make sure that we don't do exactly the same. Everyone gets excited, you know, because I need to see the customer go live. I need to have them live for a couple of months to get a sense of like, yeah, this is how the ROI on this product is. The customer's happy. It works. Okay, let's triple down. So I think that that for me is like the ability to launch new countries and new products. I am learning every day, but that's maybe the big thing that I've sort of really come to the realization that zero to one is totally different from the one to 10. And then that is different from the 10 to 100. It just requires different mindset, different KPI, different type of leaders, all of that good stuff. Super good one to to end up the podcast with. Max, I appreciate you doing this. It was a very, very great discussion. Um, is there maybe, you know, a way that you would like this platform for? Is there are there maybe any job openings at Truly that you want to shout out or anything else you wanna use this platform for? Yeah, I think that, you know, we're always looking for uh, ambitious salespeople uh, don't need to have payments experience, but uh, ambitious and intelligent is usually the right uh, sort of mix uh, <laughs> to be able to join the, the company. And uh, we're growing very fast, um, but you have to be patient. Your, your commission checks the first six months are going to be not very big. But if you hang in there and you're good, you're able to make a lot of money and have a very big impact on a very fast growing company. Awesome. Now to kind of sum it all up, if there would be like one last thought, uh, one idea that you want to, you know, spread with, with our listeners, what, what would that be? I mean, like, I think, you know, matrix, verticalization, all of that, it is you know, I find it incredibly interesting. Like I think about this stuff all day, but the big learning is that the number one thing is culture. Like the people you have and the culture you have, then you can run whatever organization you want on this planet. Uh, and I think you get the organization you deserve, uh, depending on how hard you work, your ability to be vulnerable, uh, your ability to attract and retain talent, all of that stuff, that's where the real focus should sit. And of course, with the customer relative to how you organize yourself and what KPIs you put in there, if you have the right culture and the right people, it will somehow take care of itself. And the other stuff is more of an optimization. So, you know, read four, five dysfunctions of a team is my big tip and reflect on it. And uh, yeah, no, make sure you create a, a culture of assumption of positive intent. That's a good one. That's a good one. We uh, 
we'll have to do a second conversation about culture, Max. That's uh, that's something we'll have to do. <laughs> we'll definitely add the book uh, on the show notes of the podcast. Max, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, see you next time. Thank you. Take it easy. Bye. That's it. We've once again reached the end of an episode. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And until next week with a fresh new episode.